Hello, I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And you may know that every week we record our radio show at the Marketplace Studios. Yes, that would be Marketplace Public Radio's business show. The numbers, Kai Rizdal. That's right, mm-hmm. the man himself. And right. every day when they finish recording the show, Kai leaves his script right here, mm. complete with his notes. Well, we're in the midst of our online fun drive. Mm-hmm. So we're reviving our listeners' favorite premium from last year. We are giving away Kai's notes in exchange for cash. That's right. He already shares his studio with us. Why not hijack his scripts? Well, right? That's what we're reduced to. Because we know that any public radio junkie won't be able to resist a piece of paper mm. that has been touched by Master Rizdal. Master, we call him. So look, everyone who donates money this week only to support online services of American public media like the podcast you're listening to will get a page from a recent Marketplace script. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org, click Donate, and then send us an email when you're done telling us where to send your 100% authentic page. And please don't tell Kai because... um. He can have us killed. Powerful, powerful man. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. A blind man walks into a J.C. Penney's, and he's got a seeing-eye dog with him. And he grabs the seeing-eye dog by the tail, lifts him up over his head, and spins him around really fast. And a clerk comes over to him and says, Sir, can I help you? And the man replies, Oh, I'm just looking around. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Nick Thorburn, the man behind the band Islands. They're on tour for their new album. Later, we'll speak with filmmakers the Duplass Brothers about their new movie, Jeff, Who Lives at Home. And Val Kilmer is here to answer your etiquette questions while channeling Mark Twain. That's right. Yep. (laughs) We did it. Also coming up, Willem Dafoe gets short and a new song from the band Best Coast. Exciting. But first, the news. Of course, uh, we don't include the news on the podcast, but this would be a great time to go to dinnerpartydownload.org and support the online services of American public media. Just saying, on to the show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Coming up later, filmmaking duo the Duplass Brothers share their mafia dreams. I like being a godfather. How about you just call us the godfather? And in a few minutes, the frontman of hard rock band Howlin' Rain is here with as eclectic a list of favorite tunes as ever you've heard. Wow, eclectic syntax. You're welcome. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. The healthcare arguments before the Supreme Court are over. Apple Inc. agreed to work with partner Foxconn to substantially improve wages and working conditions. A frenzy about the Mega Millions lottery. The biggest jackpot in history up for grabs. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Katrina Zisch. She contributes cultural commentary to TV shows on CNN, CBS, and others. And Katrina, it's been a while. We met you when we were all guests on the Bravo TV show Rocco Despirito's Dinner Party. That was so much fun. It was yes, fun it was. being forced to eat amazing food and drink <laughs> bottles and bottles of wine. It's like working in a coal mine, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> Katrina, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Okay, yeah. Well, I love this because it involves food, which obviously I've established that I love, and pizza, which is also pretty much my favorite food. You know, I'm really highbrow like that. So <laughs> if you happen to be in Dubai, you've got this amazing uh, potential to to get a refrigerator magnet. You can press it when you want pizza. It's connected to a Bluetooth device, and it automatically sends out that <laughs> I need my pizza signal. It's kind of like the pizza panic button, oh, and your pizza God. is delivered. Only in Dubai, folks. Only in Dubai. <laughs> it's like the Batman hotline for pizza. Exactly. This is a real thing. You're, this this is a real a thing. I was going to say, it's not like that. the hoax. It was, what is it, the taco copter? The taco copter, which was a drone that was supposed to deliver tacos. That was a hoax earlier this week. Yeah, but this is, so this, and this is in Dubai? Yes. I didn't know they had stuff donors in Dubai. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> this is for people I, who are hungry, but just can't wrap their head around making a phone call. Apparently, yes. But this is someone who just is too lazy to even open the fridge. They're just like, <laughs> lean forward and connect. Right. And then they're like, oh, wait, there's beer behind this door. And they get that. <laughs> the next button will be a beer button. Um, okay, here's something super cool. This isn't just kind of a boring magnet. It's very. It looks like a little mini piece of pizza, and there's a big slice of tomato, and that's specifically what you push, and it says, push for hunger with an arrow. 
<laughs> even if I didn't live in Dubai, I kind of want it on my fridge, even if I couldn't order a pizza, just because it's cool. It can change the whole nature of the pizza prank where you fake deliver for other people. You just keep hitting someone else's button. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly, a thousand pizzas. Some rapscallion has been tapping my magnet. Katrina Zish, thanks for the small talk. Anytime. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our euphoria-inducing history lesson with booze. First, the history this week in 1814. The physician who lent his name to one of France's best-known inventions died. No, his name wasn't Ennui. <laughs> our friend Michelle Philippi's here with his story. Before the French Revolution, getting executed in France was just no fun. If you were poor, you'd be tortured to death or slowly hung. If you were rich, you'd mercifully have your head chopped off with a sword. But even that didn't always cause instant death. So after the revolution, France's progressive new government decided the system needed a civilized overhaul. Enter physician Joseph Guilton. His suggestion, a painless beheading machine that'd be used on anyone, rich or poor. Engineers made one and honored Joseph by calling it a guillotine. This symbol of humane egalitarianism soon got a workout when the revolutionary government got a little paranoid and started executing, quote, enemies. An estimated 15 to 40,000 of them. Historians call it the reign of terror. Which is mildly ironic, because Guillotin was against the death penalty. He hoped the machine would be a step toward banning it. And eventually, France did outlaw capital punishment and the guillotine, 189 years later, in 1981. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Steve Wilshire. He is the bar manager at Bar Tonique in the French Quarter in New Orleans, Steve, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, it inspired me to do a play on the blood and sand. The blood? Oh, that's right. This is like a a, a port cocktail of some sort? It's a scotch-based cocktail. Okay. Um, The original cocktail with the blood and sand is uh, scotch with fresh orange juice, cherry hearing, and sweet vermouth. Okay. See, I I thought port because port's more like blood than scotch, depending on what hour of the day you cut someone open. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Um, So I decided to make a play on that because I was reading through the history of the guillotine, and it turns out that it was not actually invented by Dr. Guillotine. Um, The original date they have for it of a credible witness of the guillotine being used was in Edinburgh in 1709. Wow. And so I said, well, the French are taking that from the Scottish, so we'll take a Scottish cocktail and turn it French. <laughs> so I used uh, Ansoc Cognac in place of a scotch. Okay, very French. And then instead of sweet vermouth, I used Chinar, which okay. is an artichoke amaro from Italy. Okay. Um, and then I switched out the cherry hearing for a similar Italian product called Sangue Barlaco, uh, cherry liqueur from Luxardo. Cool. And so what are you going to do with these things? Well, you mix these together, equal parts, uh, and whatever, you know, however intoxicated you want to become. Um, uh-huh. And you mix them with equal parts of orange, uh, fresh orange juice. I have to stress that fresh orange juice definitely makes all the difference in the world. Okay. Shake that, and you serve it straight up with a long orange ribbon. Or depending on the portions, you could use a big gulp glass if you wanted. You to. could. You could use a forty-four ounce big gulp. <laughs> well, so do you have a name for this cocktail? Yeah, we actually also I did some more research, and they would use a lot of straw around the area to when they were when they were beheading to sop up some of the you know ex- excess blood uh so i decided to call it a blood and straw wow that sounds that that's such a graphic image i don't know if i want to put blood and straw in, into my mouth well you have a blood and sand you know i figured uh, people don't have a problem with that one so and if people drink too many you'll cut them off absolutely <laughs> well not so much here in new orleans but you know hey So, Rico, blood, sand, hay, kind of sounds like contemporary Scandinavian cuisine, (laughs) you know? Yes. (laughs) Northern Europe, where chefs are now serving us hay and bark. I'm not sure, but what would they make of this drink, though? They don't have capital punishment. Oh, not even for chefs that serve bark? Nope. I mean, (laughs) even though there's an exception. They're pretty tolerant countries. Uh, Folks, you can find all our cocktail recipes online. Most of them with way less grisly origins. Check out dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Ethan Miller, frontman for the band Helen Rain. They just released their new album, The Russian Wild, produced by Rick Rubin. Here's a sample. That song's called Self-Made Man. And here's a list, courtesy of the band's Ethan Miller. Hello, I'm Ethan Miller. I'm going to be talking about um, three songs that I've uh, recently been inspired by. They've been playing in the van while we're on tour. I've been drawing a lot of inspiration from these. They've been giving me, uh, you know, imaginary landscapes. The first track is the title music from a Clockwork Orange soundtrack. Um, I don't know exactly how this came back to me, but for some reason I thought this soundtrack would be a good thing to have in the van. There's something about tour that's both sort of exhilarating and, and beautiful, and uh, there's also this element of doom, this kind of ever-pending doom that surrounds you. The mood performances on the Clockwork Orange soundtrack are by the great Wendy Carlos. This is the person that did the uh, Switched on Bach and, um, you know, a lot of the early symphonic Moog records. And the title song specifically, I don't know, there's something baffling and beautiful about classical music made by electronic, dark, synthesized, hard instruments that reflect the inner battle of, of a young man's humanity and his psychosis. Very, very beautiful and very dark. <laughs> I even got into, like I had this little portable player and I started waking the guys up sometimes in the morning, you know, when it was time to get up and go, I'd <laughs> take the portable player and play this. It's kind of grim. My next track is called Nightmare and Main by RTX. This is Jennifer from Royal Trucks' new group, uh, which is not new now. She's been going for about six, seven years. but. This song is just something else. I mean, <laughs> it's a power ballad, kind of with an 80s vibe, 90s production, and then Jennifer's just... Like singing this primeval rock and roll thing. It just sounds like she's on Magic Mushrooms just vomiting the whole time, like without it being this disgusting, you know... Thing, it's like this beautiful rock and roll vomit. The words are illegible and it's hilarious and beautiful and, and just it strikes awe to hear this. It's one of the greats of the ages. I mean, you hear this and you just think you're in love, but with someone that is too dangerous to fool around with. Well, the third track that, um, you know, I got back from uh, the East Coast tour, and I think the night I got back, uh, the Grammys were on, and my wife turned on the Grammys for a second, and, you know, we're watching it, and I'm seeing, like, how many more seconds of this we can stand, and uh, all of a sudden, this song comes on, this song Black and Yellow by Wiz Khalifa off the album's Rolling Paper. Yeah! sudden he hits that beautiful hook chorus black and yellow black and yellow black and yellow and it's like my mind is transformed i'm taken to this place like a museum of modern art in the movie blade runner and i'm seeing like this futuristic neon mark rothko painting or something the synthesizers there's a little bit of christmas bells or something so you kind of go into this december kind of dark december like beautiful like kind of nutcracker thing it keeps ringing in my mind this um, abstract art accomplishment through commercial hip hop. I mean, I don't know how that happens sometimes. Push to start. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what it is. The guest list from Ethan Miller of the band Helen Rain. Their new album is called The Russian Wilds, and they launch a spring tour next week. And Brendan, I like how if you put together all those songs, they sound nothing like Ethan's band. <laughs> nothing at Not all. Not at all. 
But man, I really liked his critiques. Yes. Comparing Wiz Khalifa to Mark Rothko. It's unusual. I'm pretty sure that's a first. <laughs> If only Rothko were alive, you know, they could form a band. They could paint together. Kolothko. <laughs> uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a little break. And speaking of strange combos, coming up, Val Kilmer answers your etiquette questions as Mark Twain. Never smoke more than one cigar at a time. That and more, the why you'd need more is a mystery to me when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, actor Willem Dafoe reads from Edgar Carrot's new book, and later poker champion Chris Moneymaker gives us an ethics lesson. If you're not destroying your friends, you're just doing it wrong. But first, speaking of questionable morality, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is actor Val Kilmer. He has starred in such films as Batman Forever, The Doors, and Alexander. He's also an experienced stage actor. This weekend, he will be performing at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, a one-man play called Citizen Twain about Mark Twain. And Val, of all the people in the world, what attracted you to Samuel Clemens? Well, he's just a genius and extremely complex and dynamic character. And doing him as a piece of theater is in some ways, the only way to really get to know him. In in many, many ways, he's the first stand-up comedian in American history. He just went on stage and talked just like he spoke. Mm. Um, and there was an oratory style back then, and Twain just didn't do any of that. He just went on stage smoking a cigar and, and saying, hey, hi, how are you, like he was in a bar and just started telling <laughs> stories, and people loved it. See, I think that most of us realize that he is, you know, the father of American prose humor, but you're saying stand-up as well. Yeah, there's not a comedian alive that doesn't worship him. Every time I say, I just say his name, and they get all misty-eyed like I'm talking about... Cindy Crawford. <laughs> so we told our audience we were going to have you on, and they asked some questions to Mark Twain himself. So is that cool? I will do my best. <laughs> Mr. Right. Twain, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, first of all. Uh, here's our first question. This comes from Jim via Facebook. He writes, Mr. Clemens, what would you suggest a cigar aficionado such as yourself could do to gain acceptance in today's hypocritical, quote, health conscious society. Surely the occasional cigar in private or public can't be as hazardous to society as the continuous barrage of deadly fast food and health-sabotaging advertising we are exposed to every minute of the day. And he goes on in, in a similar fashion, does Jim. So what do you think? How to be a, a cigar smoker in modern society? Well, I do have several rules about the habit. Okay. Uh, one is that I think is a complete misnomer that it's impossible to quit. I've done it thousands of times. <laughs> one of my rules That's... is to uh, never smoke more than one cigar at a time. All right. And the other is never, never, never smoke when asleep. Oh, See, I, I got a feeling Jim, being as passionate as he is on the subject, might need to take those two things to heart. Exactly. But as long as you stick to those two rules, you're pretty okay. Just light up whenever. C certainly. Moderation in all things is my key. All right. We have another question, Mr. Twain. This comes from Michelle, and she says, Mr. Clemens, in these politically acrimonious times, how can one keep a political discussion from devolving into a schoolyard name-calling session, or worse yet, fisticuffs? fisticuffs. Well, I feel like we've all got to calm down. Mm. Once we realize we're all mad, then life seems to make more sense. <laughs> Just uh, treat it as a comedic exercise, which you often have to do when you think of government, <laughs> and understand that every 20 or 30 years we flip to the exact opposite, like the radical invents the ideas, and then when he's worn them out, the conservative adopts them. Mm. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. Now, this isn't, this isn't to do with the present uh, political climate. This is history. You, it's impossible to read history and not see how we ebb and flow. And, but what makes America great is that we're truly dynamic. Mm. Like people talk about New Yorkers. 
I still imagine that Irish cop and a hard-talking dude from the Bronx that looks like Telly Savalas. <laughs> but, but in fact, I think we're up to 44% of the people that live in New York City are from somewhere else on the planet. Mm. So mm. when you say a New Yorker today, you're really talking about everywhere on earth. Mm. You can't really posture it as a liberal or conservative. The country's about people coming together with different points of view. Yes. And the other, speaking of the acrimonious times, it's a solid rule that I always apply. If you just give your enemy a compliment, if you can't get a compliment any other way, just pretend you're like Congress and give yourself a compliment. <laughs> Can I just wow. know, by the way, I'm, I'm surprised that you are aware of Telly Savalas. Well, yes, I'm dead. So uh, sometimes the almighty throws me around the space-time continuum. Incredible. And that's interesting. Was Telly Savalas jealous of your hair? Because you have great hair. Telly is a very, very sweet and sensitive lover. <laughs> I have heard. Not jealous of a thing. Uh, I'm jealous of his comedic timing. What a celebrity. Yeah, that is he true. Was, Telly he can was. do it all. He was very mild. <laughs> wow, that's exactly what I thought was going on in heaven. It's amazing. Man, we're learning a lot today. Yes. Uh, all right, let's move on to our third question. This uh, comes from Patricia in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Patricia writes, I have lived for about six years in a two-family house with a shared backyard. The other half of the house was purchased by a couple a few months ago. How do I tell my new neighbors that I plan to raise bees and chickens this spring? <laughs> I know exactly what to do. Don't say a word. But the first thing you do, don't say a thing. You just purchase a bison and a kangaroo. <laughs> just a why, why a bison and a kangaroo? Because by the time we get to the spring, they will love your bees and your chickens. <laughs> I see. You raise the bar of annoyance first and then... That's right. That's right. Just change it up a little. All right. All right. Very clever. Well, actually, you know what? I have another last question for you, Mr. Twain, since we have you. How was it working with Val Kilmer? Yeah. He has a bit of a reputation. Well, I don't want to uh, gossip. I don't have any use for it. But um, he is a unpleasant. Uh, he's a, first of all, he's written things in the play that he wants me to say as myself. That's not just un, un Christian. that's un-American. Yeah, putting words in someone else's mouth. That is French. <laughs> that's almost French, you're right. Oh, my wow. God. It's, uh, it's unreasonable. <laughs> I think he, uh, he got a big head back there in the 90s when, when he was in Batman Forever. Well, who wouldn't? I, I do appreciate it's not lost on me that he's suddenly at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. <laughs> I saw Michael Keaton floating around the other day talking to Luella Parsons. Oh, good. But I hope I hope by Friday he's humbled into a, because we're supposed to participate in the question and answer together after the play. So I hope he calms down by then. Maybe it's just opening night nerves. He's a pro, right? Because I think Val Kilmer was he went to Juilliard as a young man, the youngest person at the time to ever get in at seventeen. So I think he's an acting pro. I think he'll be able sure, to. So you're in good deliver. company. Yes. Uh, He's, he's certainly accomplished, but he's, uh, may I say, he has trouble taking direction. That's as, <laughs> as, as, as far as I can go. All right. Well, Samuel Clemens, we're not going to tell him you said that. No. Um, he won't listen anyway. You could rent a skywriting machine. He won't care. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that we got to talk to you, and thanks a lot for uh, telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. Val Kilmer and Mark Twain. Yes. You can see them both at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles this weekend, and they're giving out some free tickets to vets of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Exemplary behavior. Speaking of which, send us your questions about how to behave, and we will find a person of note. Perhaps for... playing another person of note. Yes. To answer them, email us via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org, or you can call the DPD hotline a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's cubicle. It is 213-621-3554. And now, time to eavesdrop. Award-winning Israeli author Edgar Carrot is renowned for his surreal, extremely short stories. This week, he published a new collection called Suddenly, A Knock on the Door, Today we overhear actor Willem Dafoe reading one of these 
Very Tiny Tales. Mystique. The man who knew what I was about to say sat next to me on the plane, a stupid smile plastered across his face. That's what was so nerve-wracking about him, the fact that he wasn't smart or even sensitive, and yet he knew the lines and managed to say them, all the lines I meant to say three seconds before me. Do you sell Guerlain Mystique? He asked the flight attendant a minute before I could, and she gave him an orthodontic smile and said there was just one last bottle left. My wife's crazy about that perfume. It's like an addiction with her. If I come back from a trip and don't pick up a bottle of Mystique from Duty Free, she tells me I don't love her anymore. If I dare walk in the door without at least one bottle, I'm in trouble. That was supposed to be my line. But the man who knew what I was about to say stole it from me. He didn't miss a beat. As soon as the wheels touched down, he switched on his cell phone a second before I did and called his wife. I just landed, he told her. I'm sorry. I know it was supposed to be yesterday. They canceled the flight. You don't believe me? Check it out for yourself. Call Eric. I know you don't. I can give you his number right now. I also have a travel agent called Eric. He'd lie for me, too. When the plane reached the gate, he was still on the phone giving all the answers I would have given. Without a trace of emotion like a parrot in a world where time flows backwards, repeating whatever's about to be said instead of what's been said already. His answers were the best possible under the circumstances. His circumstances weren't so hot, not so hot at all. Mine weren't all that great either. My wife hadn't taken my call yet, but just listening to the man who knew what I was about to say made me want to hang up. Just listening to him, I could tell that the hole I was in was so deep that if I ever managed to dig myself out, it would be to a different reality. She'd never forgive me. She'd never trust me, ever. From now on, every trip would be hell on earth, and the time in between would be even worse. He went on and on and on, delivering all those sentences that I'd thought up and hadn't said yet. They just kept flowing out of him. Now he stepped it up raising his voice like a drowning man desperate to stay afloat. People started filing out of the plane. He got up, still talking, scooped up his laptop in his other hand and headed for the exit. I could see him leaving it behind, the bag he'd stashed in the overhead compartment. I could see him forgetting it, and I didn't say anything. I just stayed put. Gradually, the plane emptied till the only ones left were an overweight religious woman with a million children and me. I got up, opened the overhead compartment like it was the most natural thing in the world to do. I took out the duty-free bag like it had always been mine. Inside were the receipt and the bottle of Guerlain Mystique. My wife's crazy about that perfume. It's like an addiction with her. If I come back from a trip and don't pick up a bottle of Mystique from duty-free, she tells me I don't love her anymore. If I dare walk in the door without at least one bottle, I'm in trouble. Actor Willem Dafoe reading Mystique from the Macmillan audiobook of Edgar Carrot's Suddenly a Knock at the Door. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Actor Willem Dafoe reading Mystique from the Macmillan audiobook of Edgar Carrot's Suddenly a Knock at the Door. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where an expert schools us in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic's something you might play after a dinner party, namely poker. And our guest is Chris Moneymaker. He came from out of nowhere to win the 2003 World Series of Poker. He appears in the poker documentary All In, which just opened in theaters. And Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, for those who don't know, tell us why your 2003 win was such a, a big deal. It like sent shockwaves through the whole poker world. Well, basically, uh, poker before 2003 was a, a game of professionals, and the majority of the winners were professional players. And uh, I was just your average run-of-the-mill guy, played poker with my friends and around a kitchen table, and I won a seat on the online poker site for $39, and that took me out to Vegas uh, to play against the best. And I ended up winning the whole thing and sort of sparked the boom of uh, Internet poker and poker in general. 
you know, put it on ESPN all the time. Right. So you went from playing home games to winning $2.5 million, let's specify. So it seems like you'd be the best possible person to teach our listeners, most of whom are wagering probably pennies rather than thousands of dollars in home games, if they play at all, uh, how to better their game. Like, how do we immediately go from being rank amateurs to uh, maybe bettering our friends in a home game? I mean, it's actually really easy to be better than your friends because almost all your friends are bad, especially in home games. So rule one is pick friends who suck at poker. Yeah, that's, that's a good rule. Um, okay. Well, there's two things that you need to do if you want to make money in, a, in your home poker game. That's one, to be the most boring guy in the room. I mean, you've got to <laughs> fold a lot. You've got to be really boring and be patient and wait for really good hands. So you're not talking about personality. You're talking about you don't I'm being, want... I'm talking about, yeah, the action in the game. You're going to fold all your hands. All your friends are going to be playing a lot of weird hands and making you know, ridiculous plays and bluffs. You're never going to bluff. You don't ever bluff in a home game because people just don't know how to fold. So you just wait for really good hands. When you have a good hand, play them aggressively and make people pay. So uh, rule number one, be boring, fold your hands, don't do anything crazy. But let me, let me ask you, so, so you're saying that all, all of our friends are going to be doing the opposite. Why do people do the opposite? Why don't they just fold when they have a lousy hand? Because people play poker for the fun of it. You know, and it's no fun just sitting there just folding your hand. You sit there and you fold 15 hands in a row. That's really boring. And no one wants to do that. You don't want to just be sitting on the sideline watching. You want to be in the action. Yeah. So, you know, if you're playing for money, you know, you got to be the one that's uh, taking the risk when, when you're supposed to be. And but, of course, if everybody follows your rule, then we're going to have the most boring poker game in the world. It's going to be a bunch of quiet dudes hanging out with their beers. Well, of course, if you're, if you're in one of those home games where it's actually about the money and everybody's just playing really super tight, my advice would be completely different. I'd tell you to be the most active guy in the room. Really? And try to steal money from people because they're folding too much. But uh, that's the majority not the case when you're playing a home game. All right, so that's number one. Number two, you said there was a second. Number two, play your position. Um, position is really key in, in poker. What, is, what does that mean, playing position? If you're the dealer or you're sitting to the right of the dealer, you have what's called position on the table. You get to see what your opponents are doing before it's your turn to act. Oh, right, because the dealer bets last. So you get to see what everybody else does in front of you. I see. And poker is a game of information. If you're the last one to see what everybody else does, that's vital. So if you're in that dealer position and you, you're able to see what everybody else does before you, you can maybe play a little more aggressively if you've got a good hand than if you were not the deal. If you can be patient and then just play in position and you play just tight conservative style, the game's really easy. I mean, all the, all the decisions are made for you. Did I hit something or did I not? If I did, I bet. If I didn't, I just check and move on to the next hand. If you're not destroying your friends, you're just doing it wrong. <laughs> and that's what it's all about, really, is destroying your friends. Yeah, you know, they're your friends when, when you're uh, off the table, but when you're on the poker table, yeah, it's just about you know, ruining their life and destroying their finances. <laughs> That's good information for any dinner party. Um, yes, it is. All right, number three. Uh, you know, the final thing I would say is just pay attention, like looking for tells, because, you know, everybody wants to know, are tells either A, overrated, or B, very vital? I'm one of the people that think it's very vital. Tells are, um, are what somebody might yeah. do subconsciously when they get a good or a bad hand. Exactly, yeah. And it could be anything from how quickly they blink to the blood pulsing through their neck to their breathing pattern. Seriously, the, the they... blood pulsing through their neck? Oh, of course. If you're sitting next to somebody and someone's nervous, you can definitely see the, the vein in their neck beating faster, <laughs> oh without question. You know, it's their breathing. You know, can they hold a conversation? You know, if you're playing with your friends, if you're sitting there and you, you know, have a conversation with your friend and you ask them a difficult question yeah. that they normally would be able to answer, if they flub the answer, they can't really get out the thought process, they're nervous, and they're, they're worried about their hand, that's usually a good sign that they're bluffing. Or that they've had one too many beers. Well, definitely, yeah. But if that's, a, that's the case, then you go back to plan A, you just never bluff. Because the people, when they're drinking, aren't ever going to fold. So to, to recap, be patient. First, pick, pick terrible players. <laughs> be patient, watch for tells, and uh, crush your friends. You just mastered poker. So that was pretty interesting, Rico. Yeah. But um, I'm already a pretty good poker player, so I didn't really need that. Really? Yeah. I did not know that about you. No, really, actually. I, I totally am. That's surprising to me. I think, frankly, I think I could probably take that guy. Dude, your neck frankly. is pulsing like crazy right now. What? I'm just excited about poker. Folks, coming up, <laughs> new music from the band Best Coast. The Duplass brothers talk about their new movie, yeah. and we learn why oysters are all the rage. It's all about sex. But you knew that already. That and more when the dinner party returns. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from Best Coast, a band that will certainly be on your summer soundtrack this year. Yes, but first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, we've been talking about this around the office for a little bit now. Everywhere you go, oyster shops keep turning Uh, up, right? It's true. Los Angeles, Seattle. New Orleans, I guess, has been putting oysters on sandwiches forever, but still you're seeing them there. Yes, and here in New York, every place you walk into looks like a scene from a Jules Verne novel (laughs) covered in seaweed and oysters. (laughs) And rivets. Absinthe dripping. Uh, So to see if this was a bona fide phenomenon, I met up with Dana Hale, a.k.a. the Oysteress. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a superhero. (laughs) That would be a great Comic-Con costume. (laughs) I'll take your word for that one. All right. Uh, She works for Island Creek Oysters in Duxbury, Massachusetts, and she sells oysters to almost every oyster purveyor in New York, including the John Dory, one of the city's most bustling nouveau oyster shops. When we met there, I asked her whether oysters were the new black. There is definitely an oyster explosion. It's it's even beyond an explosion. It's like multiple explosions at the same time happening everywhere. Why? Do you you know? I have some ideas. One is that, so it's sort of, we have a well-developed food culture and movement, foodie movement, and oysters are sort of the purest expression of regionality in food and locality in food. So they're sort of, I call them hyper-regional. So they're the, the end result of our pursuance of food in this sort of dogged way that we've been after it over the last, what, five years? No, that's a good point about regionality. Uh, the other night, I ordered oysters that came from Chatham, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, which is where I used to go on vacation when I was a kid. And when I ate them, I was, like, immediately transported to those summers, like the cold, briny taste uh, of the Atlantic. The flavor was just so powerful. Absolutely. Um, Factors like temperature, salinity, uh, nutrient level, sunlight, all contribute to the taste of the oyster. Every oyster on the East Coast that you're eating is a Virginica crustostria, so they're all the same species. Um, And we sell our oysters, Island Creek, but we also sell probably 8 to 12 other varieties of oysters from the Cape. And they're all completely different. And Cape Cod is an an enormous place. Um, The difference is uh, the intention of the grower and the locality. How does the intention, what, what is that all about? It's kind of amazing. Um, I, you know, oysters are, there are wild oysters out there, um, but there are a few. One, because we ate them all. Two, because we polluted the waters after we ate them all. So the farmed oyster movement is very different than the wild oysters because they just sort of grow and are gnarly and the harvesting time is limited because you don't want to overfish. With farmed oysters, you're bringing in a certain amount and you're making a lot of decisions along the way about how you want to treat the oysters so you get the look that you want to and the consistency. And I think people, you know, they see oysters come out on their plate. They don't realize when the farmers pull them out of the bay, they're all over the map. And there's a really detailed process we called culling where they separate all the shapes, all the cup sizes. Um, we work with, per, with Thomas Keller at Per Se and French Laundry. And we have a special cull just for him. So we know what his oysters look like, and they get separated out from the batch. Wow. And what are they called? They're called porn stars. <laughs> really? That's sort of what we call them at home. Um, in, the, in the world, which is where we are right now, um, we call them Per Se's. Why are they called porn stars? Just because they're so... So we call them porn stars because they're just... They're perfect. Um, They're almost perfect to a degree where they're not real. It's almost perverse. (laughs) Other other techniques, um, oyster farmers, like the oyster farmers in Duxbury um, that grow island creeks, they have a, a growth period when they're little for about five to six months total. And those oysters are shaked either by window grates or in bags almost every single day of their lives. What does that do? That breaks the edge and makes them form deeper cups, and it also strengthens the shell of the oyster. And that stuff makes the meat taste different? Meat is a little more robust in that sense, yes. It is called meat, right? It is called meat, and the water inside is we call liquor. All right, let's talk about some of the myths around oysters, or maybe myths, and one of the most famous ones uh, is you only eat oysters in months with the letter R, right? Right. So what's the story behind that? Okay, so the story behind that is it's all about sex. Really? As is almost everything. I see a recurring theme here. (laughs) Um, So oysters spawn when the water gets warmer. When an oyster spawns, it starts thinking more about sex and less about food. And so basically, those are the warm water months. When an oyster spawns, it gets sort of 
kind of see-through and translucent and sort of flaccid and the texture is really off and it's not bad for you but it's just not a pleasant experience so that's sort of traditionally been the way it has been so those are the months of may june july non our month yeah however it's no longer true in a place like duxbury bay the water never gets it pretty much stays around 65 degrees in the warmest months so the oysters never spawn because the water temperature is never high enough for them to spawn so they're sexually frustrated oysters they are so here we have these oysters. Let's eat. God's spoon right here. So you're holding the shell. They call, you call that God's spoon? Yeah, in a sort of joking sort of way. But All right, let's try it. Wow. That honestly tastes like when I was a little kid swimming and I would just get a big splash of water in my face and that kind of saline dripping through my head. Very salty. All right, so let's get to it. Um, the last myth about oysters that we need to discuss People say oysters are an aphrodisiac. Yes. Really? Why? Scientifically, this is not a scientific answer. This is a, a very subjective answer, but um, they contain life force. They are alive, and there's something about eating a living creature and moss, which is very invigorating energetically on every level. All right. Wow. Uh, perhaps the real evidence is that the neighborhoods where oyster bars are proliferating um, are also experiencing baby booms. Hello. So, Rico, another cool thing I learned from Dana. Yeah? An individual oyster filters 50 gallons of water a day. My God. Yeah. We, so, should, so we should attach them to the faucets here in Los Angeles. That would look pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Be this healthy. is why their flavor corresponds so closely with where they're from. That's fascinating. Uh, and you know, the, you know the term terroir, which sure. is you know, how soil affects a wine's flavor? Yeah. In the oyster trade, they call it merroir. Uh, mer being the French word for ocean. Of course. Which, yeah. <laughs> which would make her a, a merrorist, I think. Uh, dude. Perhaps one day she'll write a merroir memoir. I Probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> folks, you can write us on our Facebook page, punlessly, I hope, facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. Our guests of honor are Mark and Jay Duplass. They are brothers who have written and directed a number of acclaimed indie movies together, including Cyrus, starring John C. Riley, and their very moving new film, I thought, Jeff Who Lives at Home, starring Jason Siegel and Ed Helms. It is in theaters now. And welcome, Mark. Thank you, sir. And welcome, Jay. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. This is not a high-concept film. It is about kind of everyday people living very humble lives, so it's hard for me to describe the emotional impact that it ultimately has. If, if you have to describe it, how would you do it for somebody who hasn't seen the film? Well, it, it is a dramedy. You yeah. know, I think that's a good way to describe it. It's got some drama and it's got some comedy. You've embraced that Yeah, we've, em, we've embraced or dramatic comedy we're also okay with. Okay. Um, we don't like labels normally, but yeah. we will we'll go with this right uh, now. Okay, because you're also often referred to as sort of progenitors of mumblecore, the indie genre, mumblecore. Godfathers, if you will. We yeah. don't go there. We don't, we, don't, we don't go there. You don't like mumblecore, but <laughs> dramedy is okay. I like being a godfather. Oh, that's cool. How about I just call you the godfathers of dramedy? Uh, how about you just call us the godfather? Okay. Actually, uh, <laughs> pro progenitors is pretty Progenitors cool. is pretty sweet. Uh, how yeah. about the dram dramedy progenitors of godfathers? Part three? Part three. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. As much as we can pile on anyway. So, <laughs> you saying. Jeff Who Lives at Home is the story of this guy, Jeff. He's, he's 30 years old. He's living in his mom's basement. And uh, he sort of believes that the universe has a, a grand destiny in store for him. So while he kind of looks like a pothead stoner who's just lazing about, yes. he's actually lying in wait like a coiled spring ready to pounce upon any sign that destiny delivers upon him. And the movie takes place over the course of, uh, of one day where he actually goes out into the world looking for wood glue. Hello? Mom? Jeff? Hi. You know you're supposed to say hello when you pick up the phone. Yeah, I know. I thought that maybe you were somebody else, but you're not. Did you get the wood glue? What are you talking about? I left you a note on the kitchen counter. I haven't been upstairs. One of the shutters on the pantry is broken and I need you to fix it. You know, I'm kind of busy right now, so... All I'm I want for my birthday is for you to get your ass off that couch and you get on the bus, come home, you fix the shutter. Fine. Fine. 
Good. You got it? Do you understand? Yes, Mom. Okay. Love you. Goodbye. Did you just hang up on me? And Jeff encounters his brother. They also discover that his brother's wife may be up to no good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of Jeff and his brother Pat's big adventure on this day, discovering their destiny. Now, this is this is a script that you had in your back pocket, I understand, for a long time. And the, the way it's been described to me is that it's something you were waiting for the right time to do this film. Why is now the right time? Because people were finally willing to give us some money to make it. That's that, that's, <laughs> that, a, that's part. That's that's part of that. It's not reason. like there's a lot of special effects or anything. Did you really? No, need no. To tell I, I mean, for us, mil- anytime you get in the millions of dollars, that's a lot of money. Because our first movie, The Puffy Chair, is a feature film that costs fifteen thousand bucks. That's true. You you do crash a Porsche at one moment, which I I realized that probably was half the budget of this film right there. Did it have to be a Porsche, by the way? Well, God is in the details, as as they say and if you're trying to set up a character in this case Jeff's older brother Pat played by Ed Helms we perceive him to be sort of the ultimate bag at the beginning of this film yes. uh, someone who who buys a a Porsche Boxster even though they can't afford it and their wife has forbade them to do it I think it's a nice efficient setup for where he's at emotionally at yes. the front of the film Plus, it's a wonderful, tasty treat to give your audience to ruin the one thing that that guy loves more than anything else in the world. Well, but I think that makes the movie sound more bitter than it is. I feel like your your earlier movies are way darker. This movie has some dark themes, but it is, in a lot of ways, very uncynical. I think you love that character, even though you do destroy his car. We love him. We love all the characters in our movies. But but yeah, we it's it's very true. And and I don't think that we consciously set out to make a, a fist-pumping, uncynical, non-sarcastic film. But I think that our tastes are going that way a little yeah. bit. That was going to be my question. I mean, is this a reaction to sort of the cynicism of the world in the last Well, look, years? like, you know, two of our favorite movies are, are Rocky <laughs> and, and, and the documentary American Movie with Mark Borchardt. Yeah. We, lo- we love these people, these sort of anti-unlikely heroes who are trying to achieve things that are basically impossible for them to achieve, yet they keep banging their heads against them anyway. There And to us, there's a comedy, but an inherent sweetness in, in, in the sadness of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in our previous films, I think we had a lot more head-on conflict, but sure. this is the first film where um, people are going out into the world and experiencing conflict that the world is, is presenting in addition to uh, yeah. the, the conflict that's going on with the family. And I think something happened with this film that was different. We didn't, I don't know, I don't know if we even really realized it was going to happen until we were really shooting it and started started to feel that hopefulness and, and that sort of expansion. All right. The, I've, I read, I hope this is true because it's fascinating to me, that an early influence on both of you was the movie Raising Arizona, the early Coen Brothers yes. film. Yes. My first reaction to that was, really, like, your influence was one of the only maybe two other pairs of filmmaking brothers that I, know, I can think of It's the ridiculous. Time. But it wasn't until we saw Raising Arizona in 1987 that we realized that human beings made films. They weren't just, like, pumped in over a cable wire. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, we, and we not only realized that, but we realized that, like, I think I even can feel the personality of these people. Of the filmmakers. Of the filmmakers. Now, the problem is we tried to be like the Coen brothers for about five to ten years in after that point, making films that were stylized in the sensibility of the Coen brothers, but we realized one critical element. We are not the Coen brothers. <laughs> they are the Coen brothers. <laughs> wow. And that must have been a hard day for you It guys. was a really hard decade. I'm sorry. But look, we have two standard questions that we ask on this show. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? And I hope it's not the one about the Coen brothers. So you worked with Jason Siegel and Ed Helms in this film. Those are two pretty funny guys. You got any crazy stories from set that you could share with us? <laughs> they really do they say, give me some funny stories. Are, are you that. trying to ask me to do five minutes of stand-up routine right yeah. now? That's basically what that is. So we've decided that the next time someone asks us this, um, we, we're going to tell them that. Tell them about the time that Jason murdered that homeless person, <laughs> which was hilarious. <laughs> was so funny. And the yes. thing is, is like nobody cared. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It's, because he's Jason Siegel. Right. He can just he's murder. Just so he can nice. do anything, and it's funny. That guy, <laughs> he's a genius. Um, all right. Here's it's sort of the reverse for the second question, which is tell us something 
we don't know. And this can be about anything. This could be about yourselves. This is not necessarily mind-blowing, but I think it does speak a little bit about about who we are. Um, Jay and I are co-directors, and we are each offered our own trailer on set. And what we do is we uh, we give away one of our trailers, and we stay in the same trailer, and we pull in a roll-away bed. And every day during lunch, uh, Jay and I go in to our trailer, and we trade off who's going to sleep on the floor and who's going to sleep on the couch, and we take a nap together. <laughs> yeah. It is a one small room that is barely large enough for one stinky man. I can't <laughs> tell you exactly why we do this, so yes. don't ask. <laughs> So Rico, fun guys. Yeah. But a little upsetting at the end there. See, I don't that brothers who work together might take tandem naps does not seem all that strange to me. No, it's, it's that they get to take naps at all. I thought we <laughs> had the best job in the world. How come we it don't is, get to take naps? You're right. Maybe if we make the dinner party movie, we will get a nap trailer. <laughs> Maybe we need a nap segment. Oh. Looking out And that's the dinner party for this week. Next week will be a repurposed show, as we say. <laughs> A.K.A. a rerun. Yeah. But fret not, the following week, in honor of Easter, we will return from the dead oh. and speak with Questlove from the roots. And people who will be receiving Easter baskets from us include our assistant producer, Jackson Musker, also Brendan Willard, Carlos Asensio, Peter Clowney, and Judy McAlpin. Also, special thanks to Marketplace's New York Bureau for tolerating me for the past month. And now it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Two years ago, Bethany Cosentino and her band Best Coast released the album Crazy For You, and it became a lot of folks' summer jam. She is poised to do that again. Her new album, The Only Place, comes out in May, but here's a track from it called The Only Place. Bon Appetit. We were born with sun in our teeth and in our hair. When we get bored, we like to sit around. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And uh, hey, man, I brought back some oysters from the John Dory for us. Oh, that's really nice of you, man. What Do you know what kind we're eating? You know, actually, here? I don't know. Let's crack one of these open here. Whoa. That's kind of hot. <laughs> 